from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. psalm for today is Psalm 23. And while it's familiar to us, it may be familiar in the King James Version, and our pew Bibles are the New Revised Standard Version. So I'm going to ask you to open your pew Bibles so that we can read this aloud together, this psalm we know and turn to so often in our lives. It's on page 474 in the Old Testament of your pew Bibles. The Lord is my shepherd. Say it with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Amen. Turning to our gospel lesson for today, we continue to move through Mark's gospel in this summer sermon series, and today's reading is Mark 6, verses 30 through 34, and then there's a chunk that's been excerpted, I'll talk about that in a minute, then verses 53 through 56, beginning on page 38 in your New Testaments, if you'd like to read along. Here again, God's word. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So the disciples went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now, many people saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. As Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Skipping to verse 53. When Jesus and the disciples had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored the boat. When they got out of the boat, people at once recognized Jesus and they rushed about that whole region and began to bring the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was and wherever Jesus went into villages or cities or farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. Friends, these are the words of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, let these old words speak to us anew today so that we might be changed so that we might go out from this place better prepared to follow you. Amen. 
As I said, we're moving through Mark's Gospel, and if you heard last week's sermon by our colleague, Reverend Jamie Butcher, whether here or online or somewhere, you heard the violent story of the beheading of John the Baptist. So today's text seems kind of tame, doesn't it? Healing, kind of normal to our ears. As I said, it's the lectionary for this morning, and there's a big section of text that's broken out that isn't part of the assigned readings. And I was initially planning just to read the whole thing, but because there's really some good stuff that's excerpted, but that would have been more than 30 verses, and that's a lot to listen to, I promise. And if we had read the whole thing, we might easily have read over the basic reminder that our assigned text gives us today. So I'll just tell you what's in the missing piece. Two stories. One is the familiar miracle of the feeding of 5,000 hungry people from just two fish and five loaves of bread. Jesus creating such plenty that there are 12 baskets of food left over. Just after that story, also in the missing piece, is a scene where Jesus sends his disciples away from him in a boat, and he goes alone up a mountain to pray. It's a similar thing to what he does at the beginning and near the end of his earthly ministry. And while Jesus is still on shore, he sees the disciples out in the boat, and they're battling against a rough wind, so he walks on water out to them. They don't recognize him. They don't understand. They're confused and they're terrified. And that's where the second part of our reading picks up after Jesus and the disciples have come back to shore. But at the beginning, just as Sarah Kate said with our kids, Jesus pulls his disciples away from the crowd to give them a rest. He's worried about them. They've been seeing so many people that they haven't even had a chance to eat. So they go off by themselves for a little bit, but as they're leaving, people see them go. And by the time they come back to shore, the crowd has gathered. It's at least 5,000 people because that would have been 5,000 men and there would have been women and children as well. And all those people are there at their destination ready for Jesus and the disciples to come back and get to work. Jesus's reputation literally precedes him to the place where he's going. Now, this is an expectant crowd, so they stand as a point of contrast to the disciples, who are often confused, and to people in Jesus' own hometown who have rejected him. This is a crowd of people who want to see Jesus, to get close. There's an urgency about them, maybe even a desperation, because they're coming to Jesus with their needs. They need food. They need healing. They need a leader who can guide them and protect them. As we've heard all summer and will for several more weeks in Mark's gospel, it's woven with themes of people, even Jesus' own disciples, not understanding who he is or what he's doing. There's confusion and amazement and misunderstanding all through the gospel. And there's this running parallel between what's happening with the disciples and what's happening with the people they meet as they go through ministry together. This morning, with these two bookends of Scripture, we're invited into this story as both. 
as both people in that crowd who clamor to see Jesus and to bring him our need, and as disciples, as people who are trying to follow but maybe are still sometimes confused about just what that means. So as I was thinking about what this crowd experience might have been like, this crowd of people with their hopes and their needs and their urgency, I couldn't really think of a clean comparison in my own experience, but I thought of three scenes that might come together to capture it for us. The first was mid-morning, early afternoon on September 11th, 2001. Many of you remember that day. I was in seminary then. My seminary didn't even have 5,000 people total on the campus, but the ones of us who were there, we thronged to the chapel, hoping for a word of comfort or some sense that the violence and chaos and disorder of that day could be reined in. We were looking for hope, not an exact parallel because our basic needs were met. So then I thought about all the crowds, and I wasn't there in person, maybe some of you were, but thousands of people, literally thousands, after hurricanes like Katrina and Harvey who thronged to any place where they might find food and shelter and safety and leadership that could promise them a future out of that frantic place. And then I thought about all the times in our history as people when we have thronged after a leader hoping to find security. These were before my lifetime, but maybe some of you remember. I've seen images of the crowds who followed and even anticipated where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would go because they wanted to hear him speak. Thousands of people lined up in turbulent times with the same kind of active and urgent hope, seeking healing for wounds that are unfortunately still raw today. Maybe you can remember a scene that captures this better, this moment when Jesus comes ashore with his disciples. But for me, it's something like all of that rolled into one. People came because they needed help, because the world was disordered, because they'd heard of Jesus and they needed to get close to him because they were looking for a savior. And here's the thing we might have missed if we read too many verses. Jesus saw that crowd and he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion just as he did for his weary disciples. He had compassion just as he did for a father who brought his son for healing. He had compassion because they, he saw how much they needed him. Now, I'm going to nerd out a little bit this morning. We're going to do two word studies, and here's the first one. It's about the word compassion. In English, this word sounds pretty mild. It sounds lovely almost, like kindness or like we're moved with pity about something. But in Greek, it is much stronger more urgent. It's a visceral reaction, like a twisting in your guts. So when our Lord sees this great crowd of thousands of people with their need, he had a visceral reaction. I bet we can 
maybe think of what that feels like a little bit. On Friday morning, Joel and I learned about the death of the four-year-old granddaughter of some of our dearest friends. As soon as those words were spoken to me, I sobbed. I didn't think through what I was feeling. My reaction punched me in the gut in a way that the English word compassion just doesn't quite convey. Jesus's guts are twisted up when he sees the crowd that needs him. He has compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now the image of a shepherd may be familiar. The good shepherd is Jesus. We'll talk about that in a minute. This may be a comforting image. It's no accident that our lectionary Psalm is 23. But the image of sheep and shepherd actually appears throughout scripture and it's much more complex than just sort of a calming picture of a meadow. It's more than a reminder that God comforts us. If you think about sheep and a shepherd, have you seen sheep in real life? Nod your head if you've seen some sheep. In real life, sheep have to be led. If they're left alone, they wander, they scatter, they find out a place to graze, they find their own comfort. They need to be shown what path they're supposed to take. So the image of sheep and shepherd has been associated throughout our scriptures with leadership, with political power, and since political power in the ancient world was a king, with kingship. It is no accident that in this moment, when Jesus sees his sheep, we are to learn a lesson about following Christ. This goes all the way back. Moses prayed for someone to lead the Israelites so that they wouldn't be like sheep without a shepherd. In the Old Testament, when human kings failed to fulfill their duties, they were described as shepherds who had left their sheep, abandoned them, let them scatter in the mountaintops, leaving them prey for predators. The prophet Ezekiel speaks of God's promise to those scattered people, God's self-identification as the one true shepherd who will rescue them from failed human leaders. God tells them exactly what a shepherd is supposed to do. The Lord God says, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. I will rescue them from all the places to which they've been scattered. I will bring them into their own land. I will feed them with good pasture. I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed my sheep with justice. So friends, when we say those familiar words of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, we're making a bold statement of faith. We're not just picturing ourselves in a lovely sunny field with calm animals grazing around. It's not just a sense of tender comfort, though thank heaven Psalm 23 does give us that. We're actually saying two even bigger things. The first is about us. When we say the Lord is my shepherd, we say how deeply we need our Lord. We say that we are sheep, that we need to be led, 
When we find ourselves in Mark's gospel as members of the crowd and as would-be disciples, we acknowledge that we need food, healing, safety, God's goodness and mercy, that we need teaching and guidance to help us in our confusion, and that just like that crowd, we need saving. And second, when we say those words, we claim who God is. We claim that God is our only shepherd, that God alone is king. We place ourselves as followers of a God who stands in contrast to human powers which fail. We claim God's protection, that God will not leave us at the mercy of enemies or predators. We claim that God sees our needs. We're fed, just like those 5,000 people, just like the psalmist whose cup overflows. We're led as God promises to stay with us. The NRSV says, in darkest valleys, but the King James gets at the heart of the thing. God promises to stay with us even through the valley of the shadow of death. God teaches. God shows us what it means to be in right relationship and to care for each other. The psalm says God leads us in right paths, and we're called to follow. Here's the second of my nerdy word studies. It's about the word follow. There's a beautiful nuance. In Psalm 23, verse 6, you may know it as, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. The word translated follow there in English is the Hebrew word radaf. A much more precise way to translate it would be not follow, but pursue. So the psalmist is saying that goodness and mercy will pursue him, will chase him, will track him down. If you think back to the whole of the Psalms, remember how many times we hear a psalmist crying out because he's being pursued, chased, tracked down by enemies, by wild animals, by threats. So here the psalmist takes an image of fear and danger and makes it into a confession of faith in the shepherd who protects his sheep. In God's care, we're not pursued by enemies. We're chased down by goodness and mercy. Now in John's gospel, Jesus says in his own words that he is our good shepherd that he does not flee from danger to save himself as a human shepherd would, but that he lays down his life for his sheep. That's full circle on this sheep and shepherd imagery from the very beginning to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we pray these prayers, when we remember that we are sheep in need of a shepherd, we are calling on the same Lord whose guts were knotted up when he saw his people in need. And we're standing in confidence on his promise to protect us. That's a leader. There's been a lot of talk lately about leadership in our world. It's trending, as they say. There's a lot of talk about loyalty. 
and we find ourselves divided up along lines of allegiance. Our political system actually thrives on having people align behind someone they follow or support. I don't know about you, but I feel like no matter where I am these days, people are feeling each other out to try to figure out where they stand. Who do you support? Who do you support? Happens at work, happens when we're with our friends and our family. We're asked for loyalty kind of all the time now, and we're looking for leaders who would inspire it. But in the middle of all that, we remember today that the mission of this congregation that's on the front of our bulletins is to live as a community of humble followers of Jesus Christ. Our trust is in God alone, God who stands above all earthly leaders who will fail, who have throughout history stepped away from right paths. So we don't put our trust there. We follow only the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who came to earth as a different kind of king, a king who knows our needs and fulfills them in abundance, a shepherd who creates safety and promises wholeness, who doesn't seek power, but seeks the lost, who binds up the injured, strengthens the weak, and feeds the sheep with justice, God's words, not mine. Did you hear the last verse of our reading? Our shepherd walked through the marketplace, stooping close to sick people who had been dragged in on mats so they could be healed. Our shepherd walked toward the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, and leads us in those same right paths for his name's sake. There are a lot of other paths we could choose, and they're tempting. Some of them lead to money or fame or power or glory. And it's easy to convince ourselves that we're getting close enough to the right paths. Or it's easy to think of our lives as a series of separate paths, and they're compartmentalized, and they don't have to impact each other. So if our Sunday path is that we're following Jesus, then we're following Jesus. And we don't have to think too hard about where our other paths lead, the paths we walk at work and at home and in our politics and in our spending habits, and that list could go on and on. Who are we following on those paths? Scripture is very clear that if we're following anyone but Jesus Christ, we'll be left scattered and vulnerable. So when we choose paths that don't curve toward the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the stranger, that don't lead to justice, or when we choose paths that allow us to avoid having our guts twisted up with compassion, then we're choosing to live as sheep without a shepherd. May we choose instead to follow only the compassionate one who didn't seek his own power or preserve his own life, but gave them up for us. May we have a faithful gut check today and ask ourselves whose paths we're walking right now. And may we proclaim in all confidence and in all humility that the Lord is our shepherd. Thanks be to God. Amen.
us go from this place to follow, to follow the right paths God has set in front of us, paths that curve toward God and God's children. And as we go, may we have confidence that God's goodness and mercy are chasing us down. May that goodness and mercy rest in your hearts and guide your steps this day and forevermore. Amen.